0: Section 10 of Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carolyn Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 3, by Julian Hawthorne, Editor. Section 10 The Avenger part three by thomas de quincey this correspondence with the central government occupied the month of march and before that time the bloody system had ceased as abruptly as it began the new police officer flattered himself that the terror of his name had wrought this effect but judicious people thought otherwise all however was quiet until the depth of summer when by way of hinting to us perhaps that the dreadful power which clothed itself with the darkness had not expired but was only reposing from its labours all at once the chief jailer of the city was missing he had been in the habit of taking long rides in the forest his present situation being much of a sinecure it was on the first of july that he was missed in riding through the city gates that morning he had mentioned the direction which he meant to pursue and the last time he was seen alive was in one of the forest avenues about eight miles from the city leading toward the point he had indicated this jailer was not a man to be regretted on his own account his life had been a tissue of cruelty and brutal abuse of his powers in which he had been too much supported by the magistrates partly on the plea that it was their duty to back their own officers against all complainers partly also from the necessities created by the turbulent times for a more summary exercise of their magistral authority no man therefore on his own separate account could more willingly have been spared than this brutal jailer and it was a general remark that had the murderous band within our walls swept away this man only they would have merited the public gratitude as purifiers from a public nuisance But was it certain that the jailer had died by the same hands as had so deeply afflicted the peace of our city during the winter, or, indeed, that he had been murdered at all? The forest was too extensive to be searched, and it was possible that he might have met with some fatal accident. His horse had returned to the city gates in the night, and was found there in the morning. Nobody, however, for months, could give information about this rider— and it seemed probable that he would not be discovered until the autumn and the winter should again carry the sportsman into every thicket and dingle of the sylvian tract one person only seemed to have more knowledge on this subject than others and that was poor ferdinand von harrelstein he was now a mere ruin of what he had once been both as to intellect and moral feeling and i observed him frequently smile when the jailer was mentioned wait he would say till the leaves begin to drop then you will see the fine fruit our forest bears i did not repeat these expressions to anybody except one friend who agreed with me that the jailer had probably been hanged in some recess of the forest which summer veiled with its luxuriant umbrage and that ferdinand constantly wandering in the forest had discovered the body but we both acquitted him of having been an accomplice in the murder meantime the marriage between margaret liebenheim and maximilian was understood to be drawing near yet one thing struck everybody with astonishment as far as the young people were concerned nobody could doubt that all was arranged for never was happiness more perfect than that which seemed to unite them margaret was the impersonation of maytime and youthful rapture even maximilian in her presence seemed to forget his gloom and the worm which gnawed at his heart was charmed asleep by the music of her voice and the paradise of her smiles but until the autumn came margaret's grandfather had never ceased to frown upon this connection and to support the pretensions of ferdinand the dislike indeed seemed reciprocal between him and maximilian each avoided the other's company and as to the old man he went so far as to speak sneeringly of maximilian Maximilian despised him too heartily to speak of him at all. When he could not avoid meeting him, he treated him with a stern courtesy, which distressed Margaret as often as she witnessed it. She felt that her grandfather had been the aggressor, and she felt also that he did injustice to the merits of her lover. But she had a filial tenderness for the old man, as the father of a sainted mother, and on his own account, continually making more claims on her pity, as the decay of his memory and a childish fretfulness growing upon him from day to day marked his increasing imbecility. Equally mysterious it seemed that about this time Miss Liebenheim began to receive Anonymous letters, written in the darkest and most menacing terms. Some of them she showed to me. I could not guess at their drift. Evidently they glanced at Maximilian and bade her beware of connection with him, and dreadful things were insinuated about him could these letters be written by Ferdinand? Written they were not, but could they be dictated by him? Much I feared that they were, and the more so for one reason. All at once, and most inexplicably, Margaret's grandfather showed a total change of opinion in his views as to her marriage. Instead of favouring Haraldstein's pretensions, as he had hitherto done, he now threw the feeble weight of his encouragement into Maximilian's scale, "'though, from the situation of all the parties, nobody attached any practical importance to the change in Mr. Liebenhain's way of thinking. Nobody? Is that true? No, one person did attach the greatest weight to the change. Poor, ruined Ferdinand! He, so long as there was one person to take his part, so long as the grandfather of Margaret showed countenance to himself, had still felt the situation not utterly desperate.' thus were things situated when in november all the leaves daily blowing off from the woods and leaving bare the most secret hounds of the thickets the body of the jailer was left exposed in the forest but not as i and my friend had conjectured hanged no he had died apparently by a more horrid death by that of crucifixion the tree a remarkable one bore upon a part of its trunk this brief but savage inscription T. H. Jailer. Crucified July 1st, 1816. A great deal of talk went on throughout the city upon this discovery. Nobody uttered one word of regret on account of the wretched jailer. On the contrary, the voice of vengeance, rising up in many a cottage, reached my ears in every direction as I walked abroad. The hatred in itself seemed horrid and unchristian, and still more so after the man's death. But— though horrid and fiendish for itself, it was much more impressive, considered as the measure and exponent of the damnable oppression which must have existed to produce it. At first, when the absence of the jailer was a recent occurrence, and the presence of the murders among us was, in consequence, revived to our anxious thoughts, it was an event which few alluded to without fear. But matters were changed now, the jailer had been dead for months, and this interval during which the murderer's hands had slept, encouraged everybody to hope that the storm had passed over our city, that peace had returned to our hearths, and that henceforth weakness might sleep in safety, and innocence without anxiety. Once more we had peace within our walls, and tranquillity by our firesides. Again the child went to bed in cheerfulness, and the old man said his prayers in serenity. Confidence was restored, peace was re-established, and once again the sanctity of human life became the rule and the principle for all human hands among us great was the joy the happiness was universal oh heavens by what a thunderbolt were we awakened from our security on the night of the twenty-seventh of december half an hour it might be after twelve o'clock an alarm was given that all was not right in the house of mr liebenheim vast was the crowd which soon collected in breathless agitation in two minutes a man who had gone around the back of the house was heard unbearing mr liebenheim's door he was incapable of uttering a word but his gestures as he threw the door open and back into the crowd were quite enough in the hall at the further extremity and as if arrested in the act of making for the back door lay the bodies of old mr liebenheim and one of his sisters an aged widow On the stair lay another sister, younger and unmarried, but upward of sixty. The hall and lower flight of stairs were floating with blood. Where, then, was Miss Liebenheim, the granddaughter? That was the universal cry, for she was beloved as generally as she was admired. Had the infernal murderers been devilish enough to break into that temple of innocent and happy life? Every one asked the question, and every one held his breath to listen— but for a few moments no one dared to advance, for the silence of the house was ominous. At length, someone cried out that Miss Liebenheim had that day gone upon a visit to a friend, whose house was forty miles distant in the forest. Aye, replied another, she had settled to go, but I heard that something had stopped her. The suspense was now at its height, and the crowd passed from room to room, but found no traces of Miss Liebenheim. At length, They ascended the stair, and in the very first room, a small closet or boudoir, lay Margaret, with her dress soiled hideously with blood. The first impression was that she also had been murdered, but on nearer approach she appeared to be unwounded, and was manifestly alive. Life had not departed, for her breath sent a haze over a mirror, and she was suspended, and she was laboring in some kind of fit the first act of the crowd was to carry her into the house of a friend on the opposite side of the street by which time medical assistants had crowded to the spot their attentions to miss liebenheim had naturally deranged the conditions of things in the little room but not before many people found the time to remark that one of the murderers must have carried her with his bloody hands to the sofa on which she lay for water had been sprinkled profusely over her face and throat and water was even placed ready to her hand when she might happen to recover, upon a low footstool by the side of the sofa. On the following morning, Maximilian, who had been upon a hunting-party in the forest, returned to the city, and immediately learned the news. I did not see him for some hours after, but he then appeared to be thoroughly agitated, for the first time I had known him to be so. In the evening another perplexing piece of intelligence transpired with regard to Miss Liebenheim, which at first afflicted every friend of that young lady. It was that she had been seized with the pains of childbirth, and delivered of a son, who, however, being born prematurely, did not live many hours. Scandal, however, was not allowed long to batten upon this imaginary triumph, for within two hours after the circulation of this first rumor followed a second, authenticated, announcing that Maximilian had appeared with the confessor of the Liebenheim family at the residence of the chief magistrate, and there produced satisfactory proofs of his marriage with Miss Liebenheim, which had been duly celebrated, though with great secrecy, nearly eight months before. In our city, as in all the cities of our country, clandestine marriages, witnessed, perhaps, by two friends only of the parties, besides the officiating priests, are exceedingly common. In the mere fact, therefore, taken separately, there was nothing to surprise us, but taken in connection with the general position of the parties it did surprise us all nor could we conjecture the reason for a step apparently so needless for that maximilian could have thought it any point of prudence or necessity to secure the hand of margaret liebenheim by a private marriage against the final opposition of her grandfather nobody who knew the parties who knew the perfect love which possessed miss liebenheim the growing imbecility of her grandfather or the utter contempt with which Maximilian regarded him, could for a moment believe. Altogether, the matter was one of profound mystery. Meantime, it rejoiced me that poor Margaret's name had been thus rescued from the fangs of the scandal-mongers. These harpies had their prey torn from them at the very moment when they were sitting down to the unhallowed banquet. For this I rejoiced, but else there was little subject for rejoicing in anything which concerned poor Margaret— long she lay in deep insensibility taking no notice of anything and apparently unconscious of the revolutions as they succeeded of morning or evening light or darkness yesterday or to-day great was the agitation which convulsed the heart of maximilian during this period he walked up and down in the cathedral nearly all day long and the ravages which anxiety was working in his physical system might be read in his face people felt it an intrusion upon the sanctity of his grief to look at him too narrowly, and the whole town sympathized with his situation. At length a change took place in Margaret, but one which the medical man announced to Maximilian as boding ill for her recovery. The wanderings of her mind did not depart, but they altered their character. She became more agitated. She would start up suddenly and strain her eyesight after some figure which she seemed to see— Then she would apostrophize some person in the most piteous terms, beseeching him with streaming eyes, to spare her old grandfather. "'Look, look!' she would cry. "'Look at his grey hairs! "'Oh, sir, he's but a child! "'He does not know what he says, "'and he will soon be out of the way and in his grave, "'and very soon, sir, he will give you no more trouble!' Then again she would mutter indistinctly for hours together. Sometimes she would cry out frantically, and say things which terrified the bystanders, and which the physicians would solemnly caution them how they repeated. Then she would weep, and invoke Maximilian to come and aid her. But seldom, indeed, did that name pass her lips, that she did not again begin to strain her eyeballs, and start up in bed to watch some phantom of her poor, fevered heart, as if it seemed vanishing into some mighty distance. After nearly seven weeks passed in this agitating state, Suddenly, on one morning, the earliest and the loveliest of dawning spring, a change was announced to us all as having taken place in Margaret, but it was a change, alas, that ushered in the last great change of all. The conflict, which had for so long a period raged within her, and overthrown her reason, was at an end. The strife was over, and nature was settling into an everlasting rest. In the course of the night she had recovered her senses. When the morning light penetrated through her curtain, she recognized her attendants, made inquiries as to the month and the day of the month, and then, sensible that she could not outlive the day, she requested that her confessor might be summoned. About an hour and a half the confessor remained alone with her. At the end of that time he came out, and hastily summoned the attendants, for Margaret, he said, was sinking into a fainting fit. The confessor himself might have passed through many a fit, so much was he changed by the results of this interview. I crossed him coming out of the house. I spoke to him, I called to him, but he heard me not, he saw me not, he saw nobody. Onward he strode to the cathedral, where Maximilian was sure to be found, pacing about upon the graves. Him he seized by the arm, whispered something into his ear, and then both retired into one of the many sequestered chapels, in which lights are continually burning. There they had some conversation, but not very long, for within five minutes Maximilian strode away to the house in which his young wife was dying. One step seemed to carry him upstairs. The attendants, according to the directions they had received from the physicians, mustered at the head of the stairs to oppose him, but that was idle, before the rights which he held as a lover and a husband, before the still more sacred rights of grief, which he carried in his countenance, all opposition fled like a dream. There was, besides, a fury in his eye. A motion of his hand wavered them off like summer flies. He entered the room, and once again, for the last time, he was in company with his beloved. What passed who could pretend to guess? Something more than two hours had elapsed, during which Margaret had been able to talk occasionally— which was known because at times the attendants heard the sound of maximilian's voice evidently in tones of reply to something which she had said at the end of that time a little bell placed near the bedside was rung hastily a fainting fit had seized margaret but she recovered almost before her women applied the usual remedies they lingered however a little looking at the youthful couple with an interest which no restraint availed to check their hands were locked together and in Margaret's eyes there gleamed a farewell light of love which settled upon Maximilian, and seemed to indicate that she was becoming speechless. Just at this moment she made a feeble effort to draw Maximilian toward her. He bent forward and kissed her with an anguish that made the most careless weep, and then he whispered something into her ear, upon which the attendants retired, taking this as a proof that their presence was a hindrance to a free communication. But they heard no more talking— and in less than ten minutes they returned. Maximilian and Margaret still retained their former position. Their hands were fast locked together. The same parting ray of affection, the same farewell light of love, was in the eye of Margaret, and still it settled upon Maximilian. But her eyes were beginning to grow dim. Mists were rapidly stealing over them. Maximilian, who sat stupefied and like one not in his right mind, now, at the gentle request of the women, resigned his seat for the hand which had clasped his had already relaxed its hold the farewell gleam of love had departed one of the women closed her eyelids and there fell asleep forever the loveliest flower that our city had reared for generations the funeral took part on the fourth day after her death in the morning of that day from strong affection having known her from an infant i begged permission to see the corpse She was in her coffin, snowdrops and crocuses were laid upon her innocent bosom, and roses, of that sort which the season allowed, over her person. These and other lovely symbols of youth, of springtime, and of resurrection, caught my eye for the first moment, but in the next it fell upon her face. Mighty God, what a change, what a transfiguration! Still, indeed, there was the same innocent sweetness, Still there was something of the same loveliness, the expression still remained, but for the features, all trace of flesh seemed to have vanished, mere outline of bony structure remained, mere pencilings and shadowings of what she had once been. This is, indeed, I exclaimed, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Maximilian, to the astonishment of everybody, attended the funeral. It was celebrated in the cathedral. All made way for him, and at times he seemed collected, at times he reeled like one who was drunk. He heard as one who hears not, he saw as one in a dream. The whole ceremony went on by torchlight, and toward the close he stood like a pillar, motionless, torpid, frozen. But the great burst of the choir and the mighty blare ascending from our vast organ at the closing of the grave recalled him to himself and he strode rapidly homeward. Half an hour later, half an hour after I returned, I was summoned to his bedroom. He was in bed, calm and collected. What he said to me I remember as if it had been yesterday, and the very tone with which he said it, although more than twenty years have passed since then. He began thus, "'I have not long to live.' And when he saw me start, suddenly awakened into a consciousness that perhaps he had taken poison and meant to intimate as much he continued you fancy i have taken poison no matter whether i have or not if i have the poison is such that no antidote will now avail or if they would you well know that some griefs are of a kind which leave no opening to any hope what difference therefore can it make whether i leave this earth to-day to-morrow or the next day. Be assured of this, that whatever I have determined to do is past all power of being affected by human opposition. Occupy yourself not with any fruitless attempts, but call me listen to me, else I know what to do. Seeing a suppressed fury in his eye, notwithstanding, I saw also some change stealing over his features, as if from some subtle poison beginning to work upon his frame, all struck, I consented to listen, and sat still. It is well that you do so, for my time is short. Here is my will, legally drawn up, and you will see that I have committed an immense property to your discretion. Here again is a paper still more important in my eyes. It is also testamentary, and binds you to duties which may not be so easy to execute as the disposal of my property. But now listen to something else which concerns neither of these papers. Promise me in the first place solemnly that, whenever I die, you will see me buried in the same grave as my wife, from whose funeral we are just returned. Promise. I promised. Swear. I swore. Finally, promise me that, when you read the second paper which I have put into your hands, whatsoever you may think of it, you will say nothing— "'Publish nothing to the world "'until three years shall have passed. "'I promised. "'And now farewell for three hours. "'Come to me again about ten o'clock, "'and take a glass of wine in ceremony of old times.' "'This he said laughingly, "'but even then a dark spasm crossed his face. "'Yet, thinking that this might be "'the mere working of mental anguish within him, "'I complied with his desire, and retired. "'Feeling, however, but little at ease, I devised an excuse for looking in upon him about one hour and a half after I had left him. I knocked gently at his door. There was no answer. I knocked louder. Still no answer. I went in. The light of day was gone, and I could see nothing. But I was alarmed by the utter stillness of the room. I listened earnestly, but not a breath could be heard. I rushed back hastily into the hall for a lamp. I returned— I looked in upon this marvel of manly beauty, and the first glance informed me that he and all his splendid endowments had departed for ever. He had died, probably, soon after I left him, and had dismissed me from some growing instinct which informed him that his last agonies were at hand. I took up his two testamentary documents, both were addressed in the shape of letters to myself, the first was a rapid though distinct appropriation of his enormous property general rules were laid down upon which the property was to be distributed but the details were left to my discretion and to the guidance of circumstances as they should happen to emerge from the various inquiries which it would become necessary to set on foot this first document i soon laid aside both because i found that its provisions were dependent for their meaning upon the second and because to this second document I looked with confidence for a solution of many mysteries, of the profound sadness which had, from the first of my acquaintance with him, possessed a man so gorgeously endowed as the favorite of nature and fortune, of his motives for huddling up in a clandestine manner, that connection which formed the glory of his life, and possibly, but then I hesitated, of the late unintelligible murders, which still lay under as profound a cloud as ever. Much of this would be unveiled, all might be, and there and then, with the corpse lying beside me of the gifted and mysterious writer, I seated myself and read the following statement. March twenty-sixth, 1817 My trial is finished, my conscience, my duty, my honour are liberated, my warfare is accomplished, Margaret, my innocent young wife, I have seen for the last time, her, the crown that might have been of my earthly felicity, her, the one temptation to put aside the bitter cup which awaited me, her, the sole seductress, oh, innocent seductress, from the stern duties which my fate had imposed upon me, her, even her, I have sacrificed. Before I go, partly lest the innocent should be brought into question for acts almost exclusively mine but still more lest the lesson and the warning which god by my hand has written in blood upon your guilty walls should perish for want of its authentic exposition hear my last dying avowal that the murders which have desolated so many families within our walls and made the household hearth no sanctuary age no charter of protection are all due originally to my head, if not always to my hand, as the minister of a dreadful retribution. That account of my history and my prospects, which you received from the Russian diplomatist, among some errors of little importance, is essentially correct. My father was not so immediately connected with English blood as is there represented. However, it is true that he claimed descent from an English family. Of even higher distinction than that which is assigned in the Russian statement. He was proud of his English descent, and the more so as the war with revolutionary France brought out more prominently than ever the moral and civil grandeur of England. This pride was generous, but it was imprudent in his situation. His immediate progenitors had been settled in Italy, at Rome first, but later at Milan, and his whole property, large and scattered, came. By the progress of revolution to stand under French domination many spoliations he suffered, but still he was too rich to be seriously injured. But he foresaw in the progress of events still greater perils menacing his most capital resources. Many of the states or princes in Italy were deeply in his debt, and in the great convulsions which threatened his country, he saw that both the contending parties would find a colorable excuse for absorbing themselves from engagements which pressed unpleasantly upon their finances. In this embarrassment, he formed an intimacy with a French officer of high rank and high principle. My father's friends saw his danger, and advised him to enter the French service. In his younger days, my father had served extensively under many princes, and had found in every other military service a spirit of honour governing the conduct of the officers here only and for the first time he found ruffian manners and universal rapacity he could not draw his sword in company with such men nor in such a cause but at length under the pressure of necessity he accepted or rather bought with an immense bribe the place of a commissary to the french forces in italy with this one resource Eventually he succeeded in making good the whole of his public claims upon the Italian states. The vast sums he remitted, through various channels, to England, where he became proprietor in the funds of an immense amount. Incautiously, however, something of this transpired, and the result was doubly unfortunate, for, while his intentions were thus made known as finally pointing to England— which of itself made him an object of hatred and suspicion it also diminished his means of bribery these considerations along with another made some french officers of high rank and influence the bitter enemies of my father my mother whom he had married when holding a brigadier-general's commission in the austrian service was by birth and by religion a jewess she was of exquisite beauty and had been sought in morganatic marriage by an archduke of the austrian family but she had relied upon this plea that hers was the purest and noblest blood among all jewish families that her family traced themselves by tradition and a vast series of attestations under the hands of the jewish high-priests to the maccabees and to the royal houses of judea and for her it would be a degradation to accept even of a sovereign prince on the terms of such marriage. This was no vain pretension of ostentatious vanity. It was one which had been admitted as valid for a time immemorial in Transylvania and adjacent countries, where my mother's family were rich and honoured, and took their seat among the dignitaries of the land. The French officers I have alluded to, without capacity for anything so dignified as a deep passion, But merely in pursuit of a vagrant fancy that would, on the next day, have given place to another equally fleeting, had dared to insult my mother with proposals the most licentious, proposals as much below her rank and birth as, at any rate, they would have been below her dignity of mind and her purity. These she had communicated to my father, who bitterly resented the chains of subordination which tied up his hands from avenging his injuries. Still his eye told a tale, which his superiors could brook as little as they could the disdainful neglect of his wife. More than one had been concerned in the injuries to my father and mother, more than one were interested in obtaining revenge. Things could be done in German towns, and by favour of old German laws or usages, which even in France could not have been tolerated. This my father's enemies knew well. But this my father also knew, and he endeavoured to lay down his office of commissary. That, however, was a favour which he could not obtain. He was compelled to serve on the German campaign then commencing, and on the subsequent one of Friedland and Eylau. Here he was caught in some one of the snares laid for him, first trepened into an act which violated some rule of the service, and then provoked into a breach of the discipline against a general officer who had thus trepened him. Now was the long sought opportunity gained, and in that very quarter of Germany best fitted for improving it. My father was thrown into prison in your city, subjected to the atrocious oppression of your jailer and the more detestable oppression of your local laws. The charges against him were thought even to affect his life, and he was humbled into suing for permission to send for his wife and children. Already to his proud spirit, It was punishment enough that he should be reduced to sue for favor to one of his bitterest foes. But it was no part of their plan to refuse that. By way of expediting my mother's arrival, a military courier, with every facility for the journey, was forwarded to her without delay. My mother, her two daughters, and myself, were then residing in Venice. I had, through the aid of my father's connections in Austria, been appointed to the imperial service and held a high commission for my age but on my father's marching northward with the french army i had been recalled as an indispensable support to my mother not that my years could have made me such for i had barely accomplished my twelfth year but my premature growth and my military station had given me considerable knowledge of the world and presence of mind our journey i pass over But as I approach your city, that sepulchre of honor and happiness to my poor family, my heart beats with frantic emotions. Never do I see that venerable dome of your minister from the forest, but I curse its form, which reminds me of what we then surveyed for many a mile as we traversed the forest. For leagues before we approached the city, this object lay before us in relief upon the frosty blue sky— and still it seemed never to increase. Such was the complaint of my little sister Marianne. Most innocent child! Would that it never had increased for thy eyes, but remained forever at a distance! That same hour began the series of monstrous indignities, which terminated the career of my ill-fated family. As we drew up to the city gates, the officer who inspected the passports, finding my mother and sisters described as Jewesses, which in my mother's ears, reared in a region where the Jews are not dishonoured, always sounded a title of distinction, summoned a subordinate agent, who, in coarse terms, demanded his toll. We presumed this to be a road-tax for the carriage and horses, but we were quickly undeceived. A small sum was demanded for each of my sisters and my mother, as for so many head of cattle. I, fancying some mistake, spoke to the man temperately and to do him justice he did not seem desirous of insulting us but he produced a printed board on which along with the vilest animals jews and jewesses were rated at so much a head while we were debating the point the officers of the gate wore a sneering smile upon their faces the postilions were laughing together and this too in the presence of three creatures whose exquisite beauty in different styles agreeably to their different ages, would have caused noblemen to have fallen down and worshipped. My mother, who had never yet met with any flagrant result on account of her national distinctions, was too much shocked to be capable of speaking. I whispered to her a few words, recalling her to her native dignity of mind, paid the money, and we drove to the prison. But the hour was past at which we could be admitted, and, as Jewesses my mother and sisters could not be allowed to stay in the city they were to go into the jewish quarter a part of the suburb set apart for jews in which it was scarcely possible to obtain a lodging tolerably clean my father on the next day we found to our horror at the point of death to my mother he did not tell the worst of what he had endured to me he told that driven to madness by the insults offered to him he had upbraided the court-martial which their corrupt propensities and had even mentioned that overtures had been made to him for quashing the proceedings in return for a sum of two millions of francs and that his sole reason for not entertaining the proposal was his distrust of those who made it they would have taken my money he said and then found a pretext for putting me to death that i might tell no secrets this was too near the truth to be tolerated In concert with the local authorities, the military enemies of my father conspired against him. Witnesses were suborned, and, finally, under some antiquated law of the place, he was subjected, in secret, to a mode of torture which still lingers in the east of Europe. End of section 10